Hello, everybody, and welcome to Taking Control, the ADHD podcast on True Story FM. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here with Nikki Kinzer. Hello, everyone. Hello, Pete Wright. This is a special show. It it's is. a unique and special show. It is. Uh, you want to set it up? Yes. So uh, today we are going to be talking with a doctor, a very special doctor. And we're also going to be talking to my daughter, who's a very special human being to me. <laughs> <laughs> and she's going to share her story today. Yeah, she is. We're talking about eating disorders. And so trigger warning, we're talking about a lot of very complicated things that involve a lot of very complicated emotions and experiences for a lot of people. And you'll hear a lot of people uh, as as we meet our guest. Our guest is Dr. Roberto Olivardia. He is a clinical psychologist and lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He does maintain his own private practice in Lexington, Massachusetts. He specializes in the treatment of ADHD, particularly with comorbid disorders, body dysmorphic disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and in the treatment of eating disorders in boys and men. Uh, he's the co-author of The Adonis Complex, which uh, it, it is a book that details the various manifestations of body image problems in males. Uh, and he's been all over the place, you guys. This guy, has, he's in all kinds of publications. He's on the advisory board. Uh, for uh, Chad and the Attention Deficit Disorder Association. He sits on the Scientific Advisory Board for Attitude and is a featured expert for uh, Understood and an active member in the Decoding Dyslexia Massachusetts group. You actually met him mm -hmm. at Chad Adda. Mm -hmm. And I that's did. how he comes to us today. It, he is fantastically generous with his time. You'll note this is a bit of a longer episode. Um, frankly, we've already had the conversation. Nikki and Paige and uh, Dr. Olivardi already had their conversation. It's a bit on the long side. So I'm telling you, I know it's going to feel like a longer episode. Just pause it and come back. Mm -hmm. If you can't make it, if it doesn't fit in the commute, just pause it and come back because there's there are gems all the way to the very end. Mm -hmm. from Dr. Olivardia. So uh, we, we sure appreciate your uh, patience for your understanding in that for, for members who are, there was no live stream of this event because Paige was involved. She's an incredible, she's a star. She's an incredible speaker and advocate for herself and for people who are living with uh, the, the specter of the eating disorder and ADHD. So uh, that's it. We're going to table everything else. You know all the drill. Find us patreon.com slash the ADHD podcast. I'm not going to belabor all of that. Thank you, members. You're amazing. And now let's go ahead and get to it and meet Dr. Olivardia. Huh? Thank you so much for being here, Roberto. Uh, we appreciate it so much. It's a very special episode that we are having today uh, with myself, my daughter, Paige, and uh, Dr. Roberto Oliveria is joining us. And we're going to talk about a hard topic, uh, one that is not easy to talk about. Um, our mission today is to shed some awareness around ADHD and eating disorders. Uh, and we want to talk about our own personal experience that we have had in our own family. Uh, my daughter has a, uh, a story, that her story that she wants to share. And uh, we hope that it brings hope uh, to some people that are listening and that we can uh, get you into uh, 
the right direction if you are looking for help or, or need uh, more research and understanding around eating disorders and ADHD. Roberto, uh, tell us a little bit about your experience. I know that this is something that, that you write about, you talk about, uh, you, you shed a lot of light around it. Sure. So um, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and for about 30 years have been researching and treat uh, people with eating disorders, particularly I specialize in working with boys and men with eating disorders, which is uh, vastly underrecognized. I co-wrote a book many years ago called The Adonis Complex, which talks about all kinds of body image issues from eating disorders to body dysmorphic disorder, um, anabolic steroid use with boys and men, although I've also treated girls and, and women. And as far as ADHD, I have ADHD, um, come from a long lineage of people <laughs> with ADHD. And having this sort of intersection of ADHD, which we know rarely travels alone. So I work with lots of patients who have ADHD and a mood disorder, OCD, a substance abuse issue, uh, and see many patients with ADHD and eating disorders. And I feel very passionately, particularly about this comorbidity, because a lot of times it's vastly un uh, misunderstood. The ADHD is often not even really clinically recognized in individuals who struggle with eating disorders. And when I work with patients who have both, when they understand the role that ADHD can play, it can actually be very validating to them to be like, oh, okay, now if I understand that my brain is wired this way and having ADHD lends us you know, to run the risk of lots of different kinds of behaviors, some of them are going to be good and healthy and some of them not so much, mm -hmm. then, but most importantly, when we understand the role that ADHD plays, the treatment and the intervention can be better targeted and these mm -hmm. people can get help and that recovery is possible. And all too often, I've worked with patients or done consultations of people who just are like, I, I just, there's nothing that could help me with this eating disorders. And eating disorders are difficult conditions to, to treat. But when ADHD is in the mix and it's not being recognized and it's not being treated, these people feel hopeless, understandably. And then when they understand the role that ADHD plays, targets the treatment and people get better. And that's the main takeaway we all want to hear, you know, for mm -hmm. people to take away from this is recovery is possible. Mm -hmm. And that this is uh, something also that a lot of people unfortunately hold a lot of shame around. And even aside from eating disorders, that there are people with ADHD are just more highly prone to dysregulated eating, um, even if it doesn't fit the criteria of an eating disorder, of impulsive eating, of dysregulated eating, periods of restriction. Um, and these are, you know, some experiences that I've talked about, you know, in, in my own life of just kind of my relationship with all of that and how ADHD plays a big role in it. So you bring up a really interesting point because I know that there is a difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating. What is the difference there? So the main difference is with an eating disorder, we're referring to like the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders, the DSM, will list eating disorders that are these diagnosable conditions. So we have anorexia nervosa, which is characterized by severe caloric restriction. Um, often coupled with a lot of negative body image. We have binge eating disorder where people are eating 
um, an incredibly large volume of food in a short period of time to the point where they're uncomfortably full, often feel worthless and demoralized afterwards. Bulimia nervosa, which are binge eating episodes, but then coupled with compensating behaviors, what's known as purging behaviors. And that could be self-induced vomiting, laxative use, fasting, overexercise, and then sort of eat disorders that might not fit all those criteria 100%, but are close to it. Things called ARFID or avoidant restrictive uh, food intake disorder. With disordered eating, it's maybe eating that's not, it may not necessarily even hit a medical threshold of necessarily being as unhealthy or as life-threatening as those other eating disorders are, which they are. I mean, eating disorders carry a 10 to 15% mortality rate. That's very, very high. And it's also important to note that just as many people um, lose their lives to the illness, um, but also eating disorders carry a high suicide rate. And so just as many people die from suicide uh, who struggle with eating disorders as die from medical complications of having an eating disorder. And, but with disordered eating, it's more these just dysregulated eating. So I might have a a patient who might eat, you know, 10,000 calories, you know, in, in one sitting and might not even refer to it as a binge. They're just like at a buffet and they just can't Mm -hmm. stop themselves. It's sort of very dysregulated eating. And then not eat for a day or two. And then when they eat, maybe they are eating only like high sugar foods because we the ADHD brain responds to sugar in a mm-hmm. much more enhanced way. Um, so they can go to the doctor and nothing will stand out in terms of their vitals, perhaps, at least on the short term, their blood pressure. But the, their relationship with food is very, very erratic and mm-hmm. has sort of these complications or cognitively, like people could eat, let's say healthily, but then they might feel bad about themselves if they have a cookie. So it's not that they're binging on cookies, but their view of themselves is, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that. Mm -hmm. And so their relationship with food now takes on this sort of approach that certainly puts them at risk for an eating disorder. But we know people with ADHD you know, we, I often talk about with food, with sleep, that the things that we do every, we have to eat like every single day, those are the things that ADHD can find its way into more with more prevalence are mm-hmm. those things that we're supposed to do every day. So where does body dysmorphic disorder come in? Is that part of the eating disorder or is that a different thing altogether? So body dysmorphic disorder or BDD is a different disorder and it's it's classified in the obsessive compulsive spectrum disorders. And what that means is the spectrum disorders are all these conditions that share genetic underpinnings. Are, so if you almost imagine like a family of disorders of which OCD, BDD, anorexia nervosa, they're all like cousins of each other. And with BDD, Most people with BDD don't have an eating disorder, um, and that's characterized by people who have a preoccupation with a part of their body. It could be multiple parts of their body that they think looks ugly or defective or repulsive. It's more than just having negative body image. It's often characterized by people who have a real distortion of the way that they see themselves, and it's coupled with a lot of obsessive thinking about that body part 
a lot of compulsive behaviors like mirror checking, excessive grooming, camouflaging behaviors, or and or avoidant behaviors, mirror mm-hmm. avoidance, not leaving the house, um, you know, and covering one's face or depending on what part. I mean, I've worked with patients with BDD who could obsess about literally every body part. I mean, fingers, mm-hmm. muscles, hair, skin, um, mm-hmm. all different body parts. With eating disorders, many people with eating disorders do have body image issues, but not all people with eating disorders have a body image problem. That body negative body image is not a, a criteria for all eating disorders. And we mm-hmm. can talk more about that. But many people with eating disorders do have body image issues and may also have BDD. And mm-hmm. I've worked with many patients who, when they are recovered from their anorexia or bulimia or binge eating disorder, it turns out there's also BDD that's still in the mix. It just might not be connected to their body weight. What is it around ADHD that makes it Light, higher percentage. So I, I was reading a, a magazine that you wrote or an article that you wrote for Attitude Magazine. And you had said that uh, you found that girls with ADHD were almost four times more likely to have an eating disorder than those without ADHD. And then another study found that 11% of women with ADHD compared to 1% of women without. Um, and I'm assuming the numbers have to be similar for for boys and men too. They're just not being researched maybe or talked about. What is it about ADHD and this component of of making it more likely to have an eating eating disorder? So there are many different factors and and it's a great question because what I always am excited in sharing this data is I want people when they hear it to be like, oh of course that makes total sense when we understand ADHD. So let's first understand the biological components of ADHD. So in a nutshell, we have all these neurochemicals in our brain. One of them is dopamine. Dopamine is implicated in motivation. It's implicated in reward. An ADHD brain has a deficit of dopamine. So as someone with ADHD, I think of ADHD as an orientation to the world as to what is going to stimulate me. And so everything that's pleasurable is stimulating There are lots of things that aren't pleasurable that are also stimulating, like danger and anxiety and conflict and drama is very, very stimulating. So when people, when we're talking about with binge eating, particularly, or bulimia, the kinds of foods that people typically binge on are going to be typically high carb, which basically simple carbs would break break down like sugar in the body, high sugar kinds of foods. I've never met anyone who binges on kale or cabbage. (laughs) Never happened. (laughs) And if you ever find that person, you need to like get them on our show and ask us, you know, why, how? I'd be be intrigued by that. Um, Yeah, really. Very much intrigued. So it's it's making sense that it's self-medicating this sort of dopaminergic response. Now, even with anorexia, which is less common, I mean, typically the comorbidity you'll often see more with binge eating and bulimia. However, I've treated many people with ADHD who also have anorexia. And interestingly, in a starvation state, there is, patients will often report this euphoria associated with having um, that having that sort of starvation state. Um, so there's some element that says, is the brain almost kind of adapting in some ways and getting some sort of level of reward because patients will say they feel like a high um, when they're starved in that sense. So 
we know that there's that dopaminergic kind of response. Now we understand from a cognitive perspective, all of the executive functions that are associated with eating. I mean, to eat healthily, you have to plan meals. You have to think about what you're going to eat, not just at the time you want to eat. So if I'm thinking about dinner, I should be thinking about it maybe even the night before. I might have to defrost meat. I might need to do those kinds of things. And that's hard for people with ADHD, which could then lead them down a path of relying on quick and easy sort of fast food, processed food, um, you know, things that are more accessible, which often aren't always going to be healthy in, in that way. Um, also, I mean, I, I remember in college, I used to use this term procrastinating, that any time when I was procrastinating on something, I would eat, I mean, my, the most glaring example in grad school, I'm supposed to be working on this 40-page paper, and I spent three hours analyzing this menu of chicken wings, this place near my house at the time that makes really good chicken wings. And I'm looking through my, ooh, do I want the garlic parmesan? Do I want, and even thinking about the food is already elevating that dopamine. I'm even thinking about it. Then I'm ordering it. Then I'm anticipating it. And then I'm eating it. And I ate, I don't even know how many chicken wings. And then I feel like I'm in food coma. Mm -hmm. So I, like, here's this whole block of not getting work done. Not going to work on that paper now. Yeah, no way. Absolutely. (laughs) And and that food was very rewarding. um, And it had, you know, it's sort of this dopaminergic response. And food is accessible. It's very easy, you know, Mm -hmm. in in some ways, in the ways that some people might self-medicate with alcohol or drugs. You know, food is something that's just always there. And then psychologically, when we understand, you know, for a lot of people with ADHD, there's a high degree of anxiety and stress, executive stress that comes along with just getting things done. And food is very, is, is the most sensory, it's sensory. And as ADHD individuals, we're sensory driven, sensory seekers. And what is more sensory than food? We smell it, we taste it, we touch it, we bite it. You know, it's all, it's engaging all of our senses. And that's very grounding for mm-hmm. people with ADHD. Mm-hmm. So now, and not only the food itself, but I want to emphasize the thoughts of food also. And even with, again, patients who are more on the restrictive side, they'll also talk about the sort of fixation on thinking about not eating or thinking about food. It still has this rewarding element because their thoughts are not all over the place. And for people with ADHD to be focused on a singular thing, can be very reinforcing when mm-hmm. you're used to thinking of 15 different things. Mm-hmm. And so if food is the thing you're thinking about, even if it's thinking about not eating food, that's still satisfying that sort of need for the sort of singularity of thought. Um, hyper-focus almost. A hyper-focus, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then just some of the self-esteem issues that can come along for people with ADHD. And sometimes food eating disorders and negative body image are extensions of overall negative self-esteem, then we know that people with ADHD are more highly prone to those issues. So before I bring my daughter into the conversation, I have a question around being diagnosed. I was trying to remember when we were at that point, when she was diagnosed, who diagnosed her, and it's all kind of a blur uh, between the therapist and the doctor. And at some point, we had a nutritionist come in. So how, how does a person get diagnosed with an eating disorder? 
So first of all, it's so important to know only 10% of women and even less for boys and men. And going to what you said, absolutely, I work with a lot of men and it's just there isn't as much research on boys and men. And the, But those prevalence rates would be very similar with men and boys with ADHD. Um, but going to, to treatment that only, studies show that only 10% of women who have an eating disorder are treated for an eating disorder. Ten percent. Wow. That's crazy. 90% are not. And yeah. for boys and men, it's even it's more. It's even so. less. Yeah. It's even less. So to even get diagnosed and get treatment, it's like consider yourself fortunate that you're in that category of people that are getting, you know, that, making, diagnosis. That getting that diagnosis and getting that help. Um, but typically it could be through um, a physician. So for some people where their vitals are uh, not where they should be, for girls, if they are, if they have already started to menstruate and they're no longer menstruating, although that's not a criteria for anorexia anymore, it used to be a criteria. Um, if, um, but it could also be just the presence of certain behaviors like binge eating, purging, engaging in very unhealthy behaviors. Um, it could be with the physician, it could be with the psychologist that someone is working with when they present with those symptoms, along with a lot of sort of negative body image issues who get diagnosed with an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to welcome Paige. Hi. Hi there. <laughs> and uh, I thought it would be good for Paige to, to talk a little bit about what her experience was with getting diagnosed with ADHD. Um, and shortly after getting diagnosed with an eating disorder, it all kind of happened around the same time. Um, so why don't you go ahead and share how, when did you know that something was different and you came to me and said, Hey mom, I think I might have ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> I was on FaceTime with my friend in like, what was it? Eighth grade, probably eighth grade, seventh grade. And we were like just studying our 50 states and just like to know where they are. And which I had learned in like fifth grade. So it shouldn't have been that hard, but she had like studied all of them and like knew where everything was in like 30 minutes and I was there three hours later still trying to figure out where like Alaska was and so I like walked I walked downstairs to my mom sitting there and I was kind of like am I stupid I just I felt really like just stupid like how did some like how is this so hard for me and so my mom being an ADHD coach was just <laughs> instantly like oh you might have ADHD and so we went and got diagnosed or went to the diagnostic testing first, or did we get my teacher? And we actually did talk about this on the show, her, her uh, sort of road to getting treated because the doctors, her primary doctor didn't believe that she had ADHD because of how her teachers filled out the pro or filled out the paperwork. Mm -hmm. And, and this is where I think having the expertise around ADHD helped because I knew that she was probably inattentive and that's why they didn't see it. And she was a good student and, you know, they loved her and she was very charismatic. And so I, I knew that we needed to get a little bit deeper. And that's when we went to the the actual psychiatrist that, that did the, yeah. the actual diagnosis. Yeah. Cause like when I was in like class, it was never like I couldn't stop moving or I wasn't focusing. It's like I sat there and I totally looked like I knew what was going on. And I was just kind of like shake my head, but like nothing they said would go through. We would read a paragraph in like a textbook and I would have to reread it multiple times just to understand like the concept of what we were reading. And so like from just the eyes, it didn't look like there was anything wrong. 
And but like, I just I never noticed that I just kind of thought that was everyone until I was like with my friend studying. And I was just like, this does not seem normal. Like this shouldn't take me this long. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot of what you're pointing out too is how important it is to get a real thorough clinical evaluation of ADHD. And this is something that is um, leads to, I mean, people often think ADHD is overdiagnosed. I think it's actually vastly underdiagnosed because, you know, there's, because I, so I'm, you know, I'm 50 years old. So when I was younger, the only kids that were diagnosed with ADHD were kids that were burning the school down. <laughs> I mean, kids with like major conduct, you know, disorders. And a lot of those kids were my friends. Um, and, but I did well enough in school. I had good social skills, but it's the behind the scenes of understanding what's the process because it's not as observable all the time. And especially for girls, we know that ADHD, it's, you, you'll still hear that boys outnumber girls. That's not true. Boys outnumber girls in identification, maybe, but not in actual prevalence. And with eating disorders, it's, you know, we know now that boys and men make up 25% of people who have eating disorders are boys and men. And when I started doing that research 30 years ago, it was like seen as a rarity, you know, that boys and men hardly had, you know, these problems. But what you're speaking to is exactly that, that notion of needing to kind of peel back the layers and and understand, okay, just because she's not bouncing off the walls, are you taking in the information? What's happening? Because I know for me, when I was in high school, I mean, I was in a world in my head. I mean, it was, I have a very vivid inner world <laughs> and inner imagination because I got bored so quickly and um and I just knew how to kind of hustle, you know, and sort of get it get through. Um it was really in college that I feel like I became a student, honestly. Like prior to college, I just I mean, it was not fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then around the same time is, uh, and I'll let her talk about this, but she, eighth grade was a really interesting time for her because she was getting the diagnosis of ADHD. She stopped doing gymnastics. And then also this is when I think her relationship with food was starting to, to be disordered. And you can talk, why, why don't we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I think that with not Honestly, the ADHD diagnosis, I didn't like, I didn't know anything about ADHD that much. Like I didn't know it about myself at all. So I never like thought about that in like with, with my eating. And, but so I, I now know that I'm a very routine person. I like, I like to know what I'm doing from Monday through Friday. Like I know my schedule, like I, I'm very routine. I don't like thing. I don't like traveling. Cause I don't like it being different. And I didn't know that back then, but I think that that is one of the biggest things that like started my eating disorder was the big change of how, like of leaving gymnastics was I was so used to five and a half hour practices after school that now all of a sudden I would come home and like eat a snack and like sit on the couch or like I just I wasn't as active as I was. And I don't think I realized how big of a change that is because everything switched and I wasn't as active as I was. And so my muscle started to like, kind of go away. And I was just like, I felt very disproportional. I felt very just like, and it was never bad. I was just a normal looking young girl. I just thought that like, I was so used to being strong and that being like what I look like to now I was just like, well, I can either be strong or I can be skinny. And like, I don't have what I'm not able to get as strong because I was like 13, 14. I can't drive and go to a gym. And so 
I just like it, it was so easy for me to just start to not like how I looked because not only was gymnastics, like quitting gymnastics was a big change, but now I'm eating the same or more with not the same working out. And my body changing was just too drastic. And I feel like that's kind of what my made my mind really spiral and just like not like my body anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you're you're highlighting some really important things that are, are important for a lot of people, both with ADHD and what we know about the what can be uh, risk factors for eating disorders. So one is change and the transition of change. And gymnastics was very, it was structure for you. And people with ADHD, Sometimes we, like, I sometimes still cringe with that word structure. I'm like, ah, like I'm going to be put in a box. But at the same time, I like it. Like I'm similar to, I like to know how my week is going to look when it's the beginning of the weekend, like what fun things, what's happening. Like I need to kind of have a sense of shape to time in that kind of way. Otherwise it, it can feel very destabilizing. And so I can understand when you have a chunk of your day just taken away, now it's like, okay, what's going to fill this gap? And that can create a certain level of ungrounding. And people with ADHD are highly prone. Like we need to feel grounded. Otherwise, we can get into unhealthy places, um, you know, pretty, pretty quickly. But the other thing you're mentioning, which can also with people with eating disorders often do have difficulty with change and with transition and things being not in control. And one of the theories behind eating disorders is it's a way of grasping, having the most ultimate control of your body when everything else around you might feel chaotic. And and it makes sense. I mean, this is why I think it's so important to understand it from a functional point of view is that it's human nature to want to feel in control of things. And when things feel out of control, we, you know, it's, it could be our bodies. It can be the most minute, trivial thing that we'll attach ourselves to. So that makes sense. But the other thing you're mentioning too is as people with ADHD, we're very, again, sensitive, not only emotionally sensitive, but just physically and how we feel. And the fact is, is if you're doing gymnastics and then suddenly you're not, your body's going to feel differently. And you're at an age where, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to go through puberty again. (laughs) I mean, that's like you're at an age where your body's developing and changing. And that is often the age of onset for eating disorders is around that time. Mm -hmm. And it's not accidental. It's because the body is changing. You're not in control of those changes. They're just happening. And that could be very overwhelming. And then you put ADHD on top of it where there's now all of this executive anxiety of like, like, what do I do with this? And, you know, how do I think about this? And I can see how all of that is happening, you know, at a, at a time and then discovering some of these things academically that could set up a recipe, no pun intended for, you know, for an eating disorder. So that makes a lot of sense. Well, and this was all happening in February of 2020. So guess what happened in March of 2020? (laughs) Yep. COVID hit. And, uh, and that was, that's where it really took, I think, a turn. Yeah. Because when I was in school, I just kind of, it wasn't that bad. It was more, I just didn't, it was, it was just like, I didn't have to eat. Like I, I could wake up late and go to school on time, but not have time to eat and then not pack a lunch and come home and like maybe eat a snack and dinner and like, that'd be fine. But then like school shut down for two weeks and 
like and also with being in that like during in-person school at that time I think that's also what started the eating disorder was just like you said with the sense of control was I had one class that was hard that was the hardest class I'd had for middle school and I would study every day for like three hours for a test on Friday and somehow still get a d and so I just had no idea what was going on and then she would like I would retake the test and be fine but just during I would just I would study so much and not be able to get it and so I think being able to control how much I was eating and what I looked like is what kind of calmed me down is that if I can't control how my mind is thinking and learning and I can't control my grades that like I can control what I look like like I can control what I'm putting in my body and what I'm not putting in there and I think that's what like very much spiked it was. Well, and something we were talking about too, when we were prepping for the show is, you know, it's also an age where you become very aware of other people and what other people are doing. And so there was a lot of body comparison. Mm -hmm. And I mean, social media was also, you know, (laughs) she told me that it it glamorizes. They romance like, especially like TikTok now for when everything had shut down, I swear everything I saw was romanticizing eating disorders and starving yourself. But everything that was posted was like the the pretty part of it was they were like, you're skinny or oh, I haven't eaten all day. And not the the behind the scenes of how an eating disorder actually is. So like, for me, it was hard to see because I was like, well, everyone has an eating disorder. Like, I'm fine. Like, everyone is like this. But I was kind of confused on how these people seem so happy about having an eating disorder. But I was like over here suffering in silence and not knowing. Like, I didn't feel good ever. I don't know how people were able to smile online. Right. Yep. No, but all all that, you know, you're mentioning it. And it's so important too and and I want to underscore your message of the experience with ADHD that often gets missed because ADHD is like oh I'm so ADHD and and people don't understand the pain that can be behind it is how demoralizing it can feel and I can relate because I remember those times studying 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 and I'd pull a D you know in a chemistry like my um daughter just took a chemistry midterm and she's doing better in chemistry than I did but I remember I failed every midterm and final in for lots of classes because the the cumulative knowledge was like way I was like oh my gosh like how do I like sift through this and it just feels defeating and so the hope is that you either you know find other strategies of getting through that or you have something else to attach to like music for me continues to be and has always been like a therapeutic thing like that's my that was my salvation I could drown myself sort of you know in that but that makes a lot of sense and understanding that when we treat the ADHD, it can help prevent some of those other issues from cascading um, in that way. But to social media, I mean, I have very strong feelings with social media and I have a almost 18 year old son and a six, almost 16 year old daughter and they recently got social media. I feel very, very strong. Now, part of it, and I told them, because we're all, we're an ADHD family, they have ADHD and I said, if I were a teenager now, I would absolutely have a problem with it. Like, there's no, I would be a, I would be the number one consumer of all of this kind of, um, and this is true, but it's funny is that even when I was growing up, I wanted MTV so badly and my parents did not get cable until the day I went to college, literally. (laughs) 
literally. They couldn't even wait 24 hours. I call them. I'm like, I'm all packed in, mom. And she's like, and I'm like, what's that noise behind you? She's like, your father got ESPN. And I'm like, what, what, you got cable? Like you couldn't even wait 24 hours till she's like, yeah. But honestly, they knew who their son was because I would have been glued. And instead I was writing songs and I was out with my friends and being very physically active. Mm-hmm. But it is really, really hard to expect a young, developing, impressionable brain to be taking in all of that information. And these apps, these social media apps are designed to keep people on them. They're designed right. that right. way. And studies show, and I have to tell you in my practice, there is a clear inflection point, having been doing this for as many years as I have before social media and afterwards, I have seen younger kids, like as young as eight or nine, um, treating for body image issues and eating disorders, who now, instead of talking about celebrities, which always felt a bit untouchable, you know, oh, I want to look like that person. They're now looking at your influencers, your social media influencers, which don't feel as untouchable, which feel relatable enough that it's like, I should look like that. I should do that. I should eat or not eat that way. And you're absolutely right, Paige, is that it gets put out there in such a glamorizing way that it almost invalidates for people like patients I work with who are like, are, are these people really happy? And then I'm, I'm even failing at having an eating disorder. Like I'm not even right, yeah. good at this yeah. that exactly. because these people are walking around and they're the bomb. And like, I, I, I'm tormented like by this. So what is going on? And it just, becomes, you know, this spiral. And you know, there are algorithms, obviously, in social media that if you are looking at body image related content, it's going to send more body image related content. So it feeds upon itself. And it's, it's, it's a pretty dangerous and there are studies that show very significant correlations of Instagram, particularly with Instagram um, usage, TikTok, and negative body image for boys and girls. Um, and even, unfortunately, studies will show even with body positivity, which the intention of body positivity is, hey, let's show different bodies and let's show you can, you know, have um, pride in whatever body. And I'm all for that. I mean, we should never discriminate or shame people for whatever body. But studies show even those images are still resulting in a lot of negative body image because it's putting out there this sense that the body is still, it's still objectifying the body in some way. So when, when Lizzo, you know, posts her in bikini and Lizzo's a fantastic singer and a great artist. And I'm, I'm all for the message of, Hey, I have no shame about how I look and I shouldn't be put down, but it's still showing that her body is still something that has to be put out there as opposed to she has this amazing talent of her voice. And that's what, you know, like whether she's on a large body or thin body, a tall body, short body, your value and worth is, you know, the same. So it, even when the intention is meant to be good, it's still sending a message that it's still important to be seen in, in that kind of way. You know, something that I just want to share with people that are listening that are parents or or partners or anybody that might have someone that they're worried about. Um, that was something that was really, it was really difficult for my husband and I, because we noticed that she stopped taking lunch to school. We noticed that she wasn't eating as much. She would wear baggy clothing. And so we wouldn't really be able to tell, you know, what she really looked like. And because of COVID, I definitely, you know, she went into a depression 
and um, was definitely isolated anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember when she was driving, she was 15 and she was learning how to drive and it was in the summertime. So she actually had shorts on and I actually saw how thin her legs were. And that was very concerning. And then there was um, a few months later where her eyes were really red underneath. And I thought it was makeup. I really honestly thought it was makeup. And I realized that that wasn't makeup. And it was really scary. It was really scary. And that was the time that, you know, we had her talking to a therapist we had her talking to her doctor. They were like, yes, you know, this is happening. And I, you know, she refused treatment. And I hid it from you guys. And you hid it. You hid it for a long time. Because I didn't actually start kind of talking about it until, because uh, it all kind of started when I was about 13. And I didn't actually say anything until I was about 15. But I never actually said anything. It was very like, I would hint at things like, how you guys said that I would I would always post on my Instagram about um like um eating disorder awareness but like I would like post things about it and like awareness about it and but never actually like and I would tell them about it I'd be like oh like this is that and this is this without actually saying that like oh I'm doing this this is me this is my problem I was just explaining what I learned and so that's kind of how and then Well, and then even my husband was like, I think she's trying, I think she's reaching out for help. I think she needs help. And I was, I had this like hope because we, you know, we had the therapist, we had the doctor and we had a nutritionist that we were going to have her talk to. And when you do the research, you know, that's your team, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's the team that you want to have. And I was like, oh, good. We're going to, you know, we have this team. One no. meeting with the nutritionist and Paige was out. And then oh, she yeah, was no, like, and then she good. fired her therapist and told her therapist she didn't need therapy. And I emailed and, my therapist yeah. and told her that as a decision, me and my family decided I'm healed. I don't need therapy. Yeah. <laughs> and because, no, and because she's a minor, the therapist was like, um, I don't know if this was truly a, a family decision. I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I didn't like the nutritionist because I she would ask me, like one of her first questions was, what are your comfort foods? And I'm like, what? I was like, I, like, I don't want to talk about that. I was like, I don't want to eat food. Like, I don't want to know what my comfort foods are. Like, why would mm-hmm. I was very like offended. Just like, why would you even ask me that? And I just got mad and defensive really fast and just didn't even finish the empo- appointment. And then was just like, I'm not doing this. Like, I don't need this. Yeah. Right. And what's interesting is that the therapist, our last call that we had with her was was just my husband and I, because Paige wouldn't come. And uh, she she said, just remember, it's the eating disorder. It's not Paige. And there was some comfort in that, you know, to, to see that, okay, the resistance isn't, it's not, it, it is this other thing. And to try to separate this thing from who she was. And that was, it was helpful. Um, so it was an interesting journey. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that's an important point because similar to, you know, what we would see with addiction that, you know, we are, culturally, we often moralize addiction, which we should, you know, that, um, there are people that engage in addictive behaviors and their personalities might be different. They might 
do things in service of the addiction that they wouldn't do otherwise, like steal money to get drugs and whatnot. That doesn't mean that they're bad people. It's that this this entity, you know, has sort of come over them. Eating disorders are the same way. I mean, especially if it's involving more anorexic or restrictive eating, your brain is literally not getting, it's not thinking clearly. It's just not getting the nutrients. I mean, when we're malnourished, you know, our brain can get a little wacky. It's like sleep deprivation. Like if we are sleep deprived, our brain is not thinking clearly. We can't regulate our emotions as well. And we know this is on top of people with ADHD who we already have a high, higher than typical degree of emotional dysregulation. So, but the nature of an eating disorder is, so in, in psychiatric diagnoses, we refer to um, symptoms as egocentonic or egodystonic. So egodystonic is when the person is like, there is nothing in this that I want. Like when people are depressed, it's very egodystonic. I don't want to feel this way. This is not who I am. I want to get out of this. It's only reward. Recovery is in getting better is only reward. With addiction, with eating disorders, there's an egosyntonic quality, which means the part of the disorder is people resisting treatment because the fear is if I am not in this, then A, what am I? You know, B is I'm going to lose something with recovery. I'm not gaining, I'm losing something. I'm losing control. I'm losing my bodily autonomy. I'm going to gain weight. I'm going to... So even when we talk about treatment, their version, you know, your version, like even with the nutritionist is like, what, what is the goal here? Because your goal is different than my goal. And, and I've heard that from many patients. I mean, even patients with body dysmorphic disorder, first session, you know, part of the nature of BDD is people who don't think they have BDD. They think they're ugly. They just think they're actually like inhuman looking. And so I'll have patients that are like, I don't have BDD. I'm just really ugly. And if you're trying to convince me otherwise, this isn't going to work. So I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Like I really should be at a plastic surgeon because to fix, you know, if I, if I was in a car accident and my face was deformed, you would probably have me go to a cosmetic surgeon. Well, that's what I look like. So the nature of the illness and the diagnosis is that. And so there is, a, it's, it has to be in a very measured approach and an approach of compassion and understanding, okay, where can we join here? You know, what, what part of this can you agree is not working for you? And it might not be the main thing that everyone around, you know, the, her or, or him thinks is the most important thing, but anything that, you know, could be. I remember with one, um, patient I worked with, a young male, he had a severe case of anorexia. And the thing that got him in was he, you can't, you don't sleep well when you don't eat well. They go hand in hand. And he was really bothered that he wasn't able to sleep well. So, and I'm thinking, okay, that's not the biggest issue here. I mean, the biggest issue is you're not sleeping well because you're not eating well, but at least that got him through the door. And we started working on his sleep. And then I was educating him about how sleep works and how it's coupled with metabolism and, you know, with eating and, and, but more importantly, it's what is someone hoping to get from the eating disorder? Because no, eating disorders are not just about food and weight. And, and you spoke to that beautifully, Paige, and what you said is like, is control, it's structure, it's all these things. So then when you can tell a client, 
oh, we can get, I totally understand those things. There's a being in control and, and having less anxiety and all that, but get, we can get to those places, but without damaging your body. And that's the cell that we're trying to sort of help people understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, because I think it's interesting to how you said about like comparing it to almost like an addiction is I think that's one of the reasons why I was so against treatment because I was kind of treating it as if like, well, like I could stop if I wanted to. Like I didn't think I was sick enough. Like I didn't think I was like actually like that. Like I thought I could, I thought I was going to be a lot worse before somebody was going to say something to me. And so I just thought like, well, if I wanted to eat, I could, like, if I wanted to gain weight, like, or if I wanted to stop, like, it would be so easy for me to, but that was never the case. I just convinced myself that I was fine. And then I was able to stop if I really wanted to, but no matter if I had ever tried to stop, it never like worked and I could never actually stop. But I just continued to refuse treatment because I didn't want help. I didn't want to stop. Like I know that like you, my mom would cry to me and people would say they're worried about me, but none of that cared to me. I wasn't, I didn't mean for it to come off as rude or right. that I don't care about your feelings, right. but like truly I didn't care at all that she was sad, that I was skinny. Like I was happy. I was like, I'm glad you're noticing. Thanks dude. Like I didn't want help because I wasn't, I wasn't done yet. Like I wanted to keep going. I wanted to be smaller because I didn't know how small I was until now. And mm-hmm. so looking back at those photos now, I never thought I looked like that once until now. Mm-hmm. And that that's and what we find, particularly with anorexia, with restrictive eating disorders, is the more weight someone loses, the more distorted their body image gets. So the more farther away they actually feel from their goal. And that sometimes is, you know, the bottom that people can hit is they're like, wait a minute, I thought 20 pounds ago. I was going to feel happy and now I've lost even more weight and I'm less happy. How is this? This isn't working. And and you reminded me just when you said sick enough, there's a fantastic book I would recommend by a colleague of mine. Do you know that book called Sick Enough? I bought it. Yes. It's a Jennifer Gaudiani. Yes. It's she's a fantastic clinician in Colorado. And she wrote this book called Sick Enough. And it because a lot of people what prevents people from getting treatment sometimes for eating disorders is fully identifying that they have an eating disorder because they're looking at the TV movies of people who are in the severe, like very like life and death kind of stages of eating disorders that they're like, oh, I'm not that, you know, I'm not emaciated where I'm falling down all day. And like, you know, that's not, or I'm not purging 10 times a day, like that Mm -hmm. character in that movie, I'm only doing it once a day. And and in that book, she outlines beautifully all of the systems of the body. She literally goes circulatory system, the cardiac system, and how even, you know, uh, behaviors that people might even see as subclinical, which is a very misleading term because it ref- we think of subclinical as not as serious and that's not true at mm-hmm. all. It's just as life-threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me ask you, Paige, you know, what, what turned around for you? When did you want help? What changed? I think one of the biggest things that I noticed with my eating disorder was how scared I was all the time. My anxiety was always at 100%. Like I would be home alone and I would so badly want to take my dog for a walk, but I couldn't physically get myself to go outside because I was scared of getting kidnapped and or to get hurt. And I never thought I was skinny. Like I never thought I was actually small. I just I knew I was weak. 
Like I knew I couldn't get out of bed easily in the morning. Like I knew how weak I was and my fear that if somebody were to see me and grab me that like, I know I, I accepted that was my faith that like, I wouldn't be able to fight back. I'm like, I look weak and I know I am weak because I, I was used to being strong. I was once strong. And so now that I wasn't, I knew that I wasn't strong. I knew I was weak. Oh. So I had a few moments where I was in a situation where it's like, I really, I couldn't do anything. Like I was just weak. And I think those, like the times that I felt so bad about myself and I felt so scared is what kind of made me like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And I had completely changed my life um, by like, I switched to online school, but a few months before that I'd started working And I had noticed that my first week of work that I couldn't go five to six hours without food. I just, Mm. it was hard for me. I couldn't learn. My manager would be like trying to train me and I couldn't like really comprehend what was going on because I was just so hungry and fatigued. And ADHD. I mean, yeah, all all tying together, right? Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't get it. And I was just like, and I had surrounded myself with different people, especially now that I was at a place in a completely new area of work with people I've never met in my entire life. That was hard because I was just so used to being around the same people that now there's all these people who are like older than me and don't know me. And so I, even one of my coworkers, so I don't work with her anymore, but we became best friends. And she said that the first time she saw me, that she, she thought to herself that she hopes I don't get bullied in school for how skinny I was because she did she would get bullied in school. And when she had told me that, I like took that as a compliment. Like that made me so happy that she thought that I was skinny and was hoping I wasn't getting bullied for it. And it's so interesting because me and her talked about that just a few weeks ago, how like that would be an insult to her. But for me, I took that as like, I took that with pleasure. I was like, thank you so much. Yeah. But it shows how the the thinking can get very distorted. And that's that's a very, very common phenomenon. Like even in eating disorder residential and inpatient programs that sometimes, I mean, sometimes people absolutely need that hospitalization. And we know it's a very common effect on hospital in hospital programs where people start comparing, oh, like I'm not the sickest one, as if the sickest one is the one that wins, you know, the award, you know, in a sense. But what I like about what you said is with the the weakness part is it sounds like what you uncovered because you know the eat what the eating disorder promises and I'm talking about an eating disorder like it's an like an entity it's not you it's something outside you that the eating disorder promises you know here's this thing that will give you a sense of control that will give you a sense of power that will give you strength that will give you you know all of this and when you recognize how weak you were it was like, wait a minute, I'm not feeling strong. I'm actually feeling so weak that I feel so vulnerable and almost paranoid to someone kidnapping me like this. And and it sounds like something, it's almost the illusion was like the Wizard of Oz curtain was pulled away. And it was like, wait a minute, this is not, what what is what is this giving me? Like something clicked. And that that's often what I always hope that, you know, when patients can connect to, it's like, wait a minute, like I, I remember this young woman, she had ADHD and, and vacillated with binging and it would get restrictive and it was all, and she's like, I started this because I wanted people to like me more. I wanted to be more, I'm an extrovert. She goes, I wanted to be more socially acceptable. And I figured if I looked perfect, then, and she goes, and now 
I realize I don't leave my house because I feel ugly or fat or this or that. I'm not socializing with anyone. She goes, so this eating disorder has literally moved me as far away from the original intent of what I was. And she goes, it's a lie. She goes, it's a liar. The eating disorder is a liar. And I, it was like confetti could have been, you know, burst, you know, in the room. And it was like, yes, that's exactly. And that was the beginning of recovery. And those are the moments that I always hope that people can connect to is like, this isn't giving me what I'm, what I'm ultimately really looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and something that she told me yesterday when we were talking about this is that it was important what, and, and she can speak more to this about how important it is that the person has to want it. Yeah. Um, because I could have told her a million times how worried I was, how much she was, you know, how loved she was, how beautiful she was inside and out. And it wouldn't have mattered. Right. And, um, but there was something that clicked with her that all of a sudden, and, and she can talk more about this with her coworkers. She, she surrounded herself with different people. Um, and they, and she was hearing things from a different point of view point of view and, and from a different person and from a different person that was weren't her parents or a therapist or or whatever and the timing was right um like it kind of felt like it wasn't somebody like a therapist who that is what like they're there to help me it felt like it was from somebody who just genuinely wanted to help me or genuinely wanted to inform me on food and nutrition and how important it was and just like you said, I do, I think one of the biggest things for people who are struggling with an eating disorder or know someone is that like, you have to be the one to decide that you want help. Like people can want that people can want you to decide that but you have to be the one that I would have never have healed or started to move on. If it wasn't for me being like, I can't do this. Like, I can't keep doing this to myself. I feel terrible. I'm not happy. No matter how skinny I'm getting, I will never be satisfied. And so it was all, I feel like what really changed my outlook on it was realizing that I'm not happy. And I don't think I ever will be. I thought that I was going to be struggling with this feeling and that depression for my entire life. I never thought things were going to get better. And I kind of just accepted that like, well, this is my life. I'm a sad person. But then I was just like, I don't have to be sad because you would have moments when you're depressed that you do make you smile and you do have joy. And I kind of took each one of those moments and realized that I can have more of these. I'm just not trying that I can be happy if I try. Like I want I want to be able to go out to dinner with my friends and not have to make it miserable for myself by looking at trying to find the calories on the menu. Like, I want to be able to have fun without obsessing over something. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. just commend you, Paige, just for your courage and sharing your story. Because that, when when people who are struggling hear from people in recovery and hear from people who have, you know, known that journey, it has an extremely powerful impact. I mean, I think that visibility is so important. And you're describing, you know, the experience in such a way, too, that will just will resonate with so many people. And I think what you said is 100% true that you have to get to a point of of wanting the help, feeling you're worth that, and knowing and really exposing, in a sense, the eating disorders that this isn't actually getting me to where I, I want to go. Um, and clearly, you got, you know, you got a lot of support from your family, but it and I think and I empathize with you. Um, Nikki, because as a parent, it's like, oh my God, it, it is 
with the parents that I work with, it's torture. I mean, you see your child engaged in this and you can't, it's not like you can shove food down somebody's right. throat, you know, right. In, right. in that way. It's yeah. a very, it's a lot of patience and love and trust and, and of course the right support. So yeah, um, I just commend your courage and sharing your story. I do too. I think one of another thing too, that's very important that I would like to say is that like, I know for like my parents that they thought that they didn't do enough and that if it wasn't for me to, to have like gone on with recovery that I would have just died that way or kept like that. But I think one of the biggest things for people who maybe has like a daughter or a son or just anyone they know who's struggling with eating disorder, that is not your fault that they're, and they did everything they could. I didn't let them know enough of what was going on that the stuff that they did know they did do enough. They just didn't know all the behind the scenes. And I was refusing treatment that it was never your guys' fault. And it was never, nobody ever made me feel bad. No one ever made me feel bad. Mm -hmm. just that it was all it's a whole mind thing eating disorders are it's not just about your body it's not just about what you're eating it like it takes over you like your entire mind there's this voice in the back of your head that just keeps telling you don't eat this don't like don't talk to this person like or don't like refuse treatment like it was never Mm -hmm. anyone's fault well and what was interesting as far as the recovery piece and I appreciate you saying that I really do because it is hard not to take blame and it is hard to not feel like did was she sick enough and I didn't pay attention right mm. like after reading that book especially it was like it was the, the, it anyway yeah it's hard no doubt about it yeah. um but one of the things that um I think, you know, as we start to wrap it up and we start to talk about like recovery and where she's at, you know, she was having some uh, health issues. And so she had to get some blood work done and she had some heart issues and there were some things going on. Um, And you, you, and I think with the, the people that are around you that encourage you to be well, not losing weight, not gaining weight, it was more around health and wellness. And so she started kind of going back into the gym, she started getting stronger, she started eating more. Um, She was vegetarian and vegan for a long time. Do you want to talk about how that changed? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I went vegetarian about like three, four years ago. um, Mm -hmm. While I was in an eating disorder, because I thought that was gonna help me lose weight. I was yep. like, cut meat out and that perfect. But I just kind of stuck with it. Even like now I just got used to it and I didn't mind it. I didn't eat meat that much. So, mm-hmm. but then last year on December or on January 1st, I went vegan on a bet and it was who could go vegan the longest and I won. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept going because I was like, you know, I really like this. And I had never, I was learning so much about food that being vegan, it taught me how to shop for my own food and it taught me how to, eat it told me like it taught me what to eat and I realized that with such a restriction of like a dietary need like that I needed to eat food I couldn't just eat a piece of meat in the morning and like be good for a little bit like I had to make sure I was getting the vitamins and the nutrients and and then I was also getting into the gym I was getting into weightlifting and muscle growth and so I was like I was learning about protein so I was trying to get protein in which is hard with vegan food but I was able to do it but then <laughs> I got more blood work done because I wasn't feeling good. I got diagnosed with POTS syndrome. Um, and so 
I got my blood work done. We went and talked to my naturopathic, my naturopath about that. And she was just kind of like, if you have really good reasons to be vegan, then you can stay. But it was just, it became really unhealthy for me. I was malnourished. I was deficient in vitamins. And because I had, I was telling them that I feel worse now. I'm eating the most food I've ever had. And I am the heaviest I've ever been. And I feel worse now than I did when I didn't eat. Like I had much more energy then. And now I don't have none. I crash in the middle of the day. And we kind of discovered that I was all just for my diet. And so now I'm no longer vegan and I eat meat. <laughs> and the past like two weeks, I feel so much better. Like I feel great. I'm eating good food that's not processed chemicals made into fake meat. <laughs> yep. No, but there's something and you know, unfortunately, I know we're out of time, but um, a, a colleague of mine, uh, James Greenblatt, um, who does actually work in ADHD world as well as eating disorder world. He's here in Boston. He, um, he did in a webinar recently, he strongly feels that any developing individual should not be a vegan because he's he does a lot of work actually with um, supplementation and with diet and minerals and, and things like that. And um, there are a lot of proteins and things like that, that I was a vegetarian when I was in high school and it did not work out for me um, yeah. either. And I was big into animal rights. That was like the main thing that brought me to that. And it it wasn't good. Like I I was eating, now this was at the time where like carbs were like, oh, there's no fat, you know, in carbs. And I was eating tons of carbs to make up for protein I wasn't really eating. And it wasn't good for my metabolism, for my weight. And and so pro, like meat is not a bad thing. It's just everything, regulation, moderation, and it's what you're eating, you know, with it. Like it's maybe the French fries. And it's again, not that we, it's like, oh, I should never have French fries, but it's just eating things in, in moderation. So it's really important. I think past development, like after 30, if someone wants to be on a plant-based, you know, vegan diet, studies show it might not be as negatively impactful, but you have to still be really careful and aware of that. So I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that you've incorporated that in it and you see the difference. Yeah. Um, and I kind of realized that I would rather be healthy and feel good than just do some, like just continue being vegan because I've been doing it for so long. So it was kind of a hard change, but I did it. Well, and I think one note that I want us to leave on is, is when we talked, I talked to her about like, what, what do you think about your recovery? Are you in recovery? How does this feel? It's not consistent. Yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit? I, that, I kind that of voice, yeah, I kind of think of it as like a way of like grief that it's not consistent. It's not like a five stage process. And how I am, I do eat now and I work out and I make sure I'm fueling my body and I take good care of myself. But there is always that tiny voice in my head that will never go away. Like the, I'm carrying the weight of my eating disorder with me probably forever that I don't listen. It will, I'll, it'll say it when I, I'm at the end of the day and I've eaten a lot of food and I just have to keep reminding myself that this is okay, that I did eat a lot of food today, but I also went to the gym and I worked. And like, I did a lot today that I do need this food. And, you know, especially with looking at my photos from when I was deep in an eating disorder, I still will sometimes think if I didn't think I was skinny, then like, am I is my mind twisted now? Like, I'll look in the mirror at the gym. And I kind of think like, I don't is this really what I look like? Like, I double guess myself. I get confused. And I get sad. And 
sometimes I don't like how my body looks. And sometimes I do. Sometimes I think I'm too fat. And sometimes I think I'm too skinny, even though I'm not any of those, honestly. And so I yeah, so I think like recovery is I'm not fully recovered. And I don't really know if you ever fully recover. I think that you can. But there is always that little piece of you that won't go away because it it's took my entire life. I didn't know who I was. I let that be my identity was that I was skinny. And I don't think that will, that reminder will never go away that I look back, I'll be doing something now that I would never have done two years ago. And I just think, why am I doing this? Like, I was so against this. What am I doing mm. right now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that you speak to, I mean, what the common experience is when we think about recovery is, um, and you know, I have worked with people where it truly is, they don't have that voice in their head anymore. They did for a long period of time. But again, making that analogy with addiction, it's, I, I, I think, very similar. Like there mm-hmm. are some individuals where every, it's a day by day by day by day process. And even though they're 40 years sober, they feel like it can derail if they don't watch, you know, their skills and work on what they need to work on. And then there are other people I've worked with where it's just not even, it's so detached from their identity and they almost feel like it was like a different person. But I think that's so important to mention, it can be varied. And the fact is, is that having the presence of that voice doesn't mean you're not in recovery. It doesn't mean you're not healthy because honestly, for anybody, we can have I mean, we can replace whether it's a voice about our bodies or just an ADHD, a voice about ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, you're stupid or you're this or you're that. And we can be like, yeah, you, you are just a negative thought. That's not helpful. What I am doing is I'm fueling my body. I'm at the gym. I'm connecting with people. Mm-hmm. And you look at the data that's in front of you. But that's exactly right. With eating disorders, it gets so intertwined and also at a developmental period in life where identity is just developing, mm-hmm. you know, in puberty. So they get so intertwined that it can take a while to un- to really undo that, to be like, oh, wait a minute. Yes, this is the new me, the person that goes to the gym that is eating this food and says, this is me. Feels a little funny from who I, who the me was, you know, two years ago. And maybe, like you said, those thoughts will be there and it's just, counteracting them. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you might be surprised that one day those that voice gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because your life gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I know people can't see this, but when you said that, Roberto, she was smiling. <laughs> <laughs> I see you yeah, yeah. But I can see that there's that that smile of, oh, when, you know, like, I, I want I'm that. Ready, yeah, I'm ready, I'm ready for that. But, you know, yeah. something that she said when we were talking about the show is that she said, I was ready to fight. This, I was ready to fight the voice. And I think that's really, you know, telling that she I was, was ready, ready for it. Um, yes. Ready to live a life you, that I was supposed to your, dad and I and your family love you very, very much. And we're very, very proud of you. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your story, Paige, because I I think Roberto is right. It's going to help other people. I hope it does shed some light on awareness around ADHD and eating disorders. And Roberto, oh my gosh, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. And yes, and having this conversation. And as I told you at the conference, I didn't want anyone else but you. And I just really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here. And it was nice to meet you, Paige. And and again, I'm in awe of your story. And I 
tell people, anyone who's in recovery to know the amount of strength that it takes to do that. And I always tell patients that when they encounter other things that might throw people, you're going to be like, you know what? I got this. I've been through a whole lot worse and have navigated through that. And there's, you know, there's growth that comes from that. And so I, I wish you well in, in your recovery and, and really happy to be part of this conversation. Nikki, I have to tell you, I know Paige is a star. She's amazing. <laughs> and the way she talks about her story and the vulnerability with which she shares these things is uh, is extraordinary. Um, I was really moved at just how many of the the points were made that line up with my experience with my relationship with food, frankly, mm -hmm. like I've complained about my relationship with food for years, and had no idea that this was the kind of thing that we were going to be hearing about today, not mm -hmm. even a little bit. I don't think mm -hmm. I truly really understood what an eating disorder was. Mm -hmm. And, um, and what disordered eating was Eatiness, that was such a yeah. great question that you asked and, and explored. So mm -hmm. I, I, how do you feel now that you've done it? I feel great. I feel uh, that it couldn't have gone any better. You know, uh, we were both really nervous going into it. And as being his her mom, I was really nervous because I, I didn't know how much she wanted to share or what she felt comfortable with. And, but I let her lead and, and, uh, and she was, she was a star. And, uh, I think that there was more she could have said if we had longer time and it, and, and same thing with the doctor. I mean, this conversation could have gone for a long time because yeah, there's just so sure. much to it. Um, but no, I feel really good about it. I think that one, one thing that I would want to say uh, that I didn't have a chance to really talk about because we were running out of time is Paige is in recovery. Uh, she is in therapy now. She uh, is not refusing it. <laughs> she actually asked to go to a therapist. Uh, it's not necessarily around her eating disorder and ADHD, although those things I'm sure come up, but it's just, it's hard being a teenager and, uh, and, and she is in re or she is seeing a therapist. She also continues to see a doctor and she's seeing a holistic doctor right now too, mm -hmm. uh, because she was having some health problems. She mentioned at the end that she was diagnosed with POTS and that has a lot to do with your heart, right? Mm -hmm. well, everything to do with your heart and, uh, and the symptoms, she just wasn't feeling good. And so we're, we're glad that she's changed her diet, um, to put some, uh, uh, you know, more protein and iron and things that she right. was, was not getting. So right. I would say she's in recovery. Um, I'm so proud yeah. of her. I, I, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that you just want to hold on to, like, just, I don't want to go back. Yeah, <laughs> so I right. just hope that, you know, she keeps fighting that vi that that voice that she hears every day and that she keeps yeah. winning because right now she's winning. And I just want her to keep doing that because it's so important to um, take care of yourself, you know, your your yeah. mind, your body, all of it. Well, such great thanks to Paige and uh, Dr. Olivardia and you, Mom, for for doing <laughs> this and for making it happen. Um, because I think it's a it's a, a truly valuable conversation. I know I got a ton out of hearing it and then editing it, and uh, it's it's uh, really great. So thank you, and and thank you to everybody for downloading, listening to the show, the whole thing. If you got to the end, Chef's kiss, Mwah, you're fantastic. Yes. We we sure appreciate that. And uh, again, if if you want to hear uh, any of the 
any of the goodies, uh, join us at, on Patreon, patreon.com slash the ADHD podcast. And more one more thing, there. Pete, before sure. we leave, mm-hmm. uh, if you want any more information or you need help, um, either yourself or somebody you love or care about, we do have the suicide hotline uh, in our show notes. And we also yep. have the eating disorders hotline on our show notes as well. Absolutely. Find all those in the show notes or on the website or on Patreon. We've got it everywhere or in Discord. We'd love to see you over there. So thanks, everybody. On behalf of Dr. Roberto Oliveria and Paige Kinzer and Nikki Kinzer, I'm Pete Wright. We'll see you next week right here on Taking Control, the ADHD podcast. Thank you.